Hi, I'm David Catterford, CEO at Champion Iron. We operate a high-grade iron ore mine in the north of Quebec, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world, and we have significant growth opportunities to be able to play into the green steel transition. Green steel transition. So we better explain what that means and why people want it. What can you tell us? Yeah, what's, uh, what's important to note is that steel manufacturing around the world uh, sort of accounts for about 8% of the CO2 emissions worldwide. So it's one of the largest emitters on the planet. And if you can imagine, that's comparable to the amount of CO2 emissions in light transportation. And you've probably seen electric vehicles starting to pop up pretty much everywhere and a lot of interest from governments and a lot of funds being put into electric vehicles. But you have to imagine that there's as much passive money that's available to decarbonize the steel industry. But we'll, we'll be able to discuss why it's a little bit more complicated and why it's very region focused and why Quebec really stands out as a solution to uh, transition to green steel. Right. So you're, you're a USP in that is you you don't use coal. Is that right? Well, currently, all steelmaking uh, uses coal. Uh, the If you look at how we make steel today, there's two basic routes. There's the blast furnace, which is the, the uh, original method, uh, I'd like to say, to produce uh, steel. And this method produces about two tons of CO2 emissions per ton of steel. So it's the, the, the most polluting way to make steel, but it's the best way to make high-quality steel using low-quality iron. There's another technology that's been around for the past uh, decades, and that's using um, electric arc furnaces. That was initially invented to be able to use scrap and to recycle the scrap. So this produces less CO2 emissions because it uses electricity to be able to melt down the uh, scrap to be able to produce steel. In the past, there was an issue with this because you weren't able to produce high-quality uh, steels with this technology. They've since worked through that, and now you can actually produce high-end steel, and you have half the CO2 emissions than you have in the blast furnace. So one ton of CO2 emission per ton of steel. So is that what you're planning to use? Well, our, our plan is to be able to get into that market because we're in a unique position now in the sense that if you look at why electric arc furnaces were built, we just mentioned it's to use scrap. So there was a sort of equilibrium between how much scrap is available and how much electric arc furnaces were being built. What we're seeing around the world now is that governments understood that to decarbonize the steel industry, they need more electric uh, arc furnaces. So they've been subsidizing massively this industry to help steel manufacturers transition from blast furnace to electric arc furnace. The issue with that is that we're falling out of that equilibrium. There's not enough scrap to supply all of these new uh, electric arc furnaces. So what happens is you need ultra-pure high-grade uh, high iron ore to be able to substitute scrap in those. And that's where we really want to be part of the, the solution. Right. So, so is that a yes? That's a definite yes. Okay, good. Right. So let, and let, let's talk about that market a little bit. And we will get into the project proper in a second, right? But I just need I, I need to understand. I imagine people watching and listening and reading about this will want to understand. Um, in terms of the market at the moment, we, we're seeing news coming out of China. Oh, it's it's all doom and gloom. The GDP is is dropping. Um, and that's going to affect the rest of the world. So what USPs do you have? Can you charge a premium? Can you do? Does your product allow for increased margins? How, what are the defenses in in uh, on your side? Yeah, even when when we look at China, I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of bad news when you look at the West. I was just having lunch yesterday with the the, the president of Bank of China here in Canada, and uh, he actually has access to press from China. 
and we were discussing what was actually happening over there. And uh, it wasn't all doom and gloom. So when you speak uh, with them, yes, there's the large infrastructure uh, builders that are, are in some difficulty. But he's saying there's a lot of large companies that don't necessarily get uh, a lot of press that are uh, operational and are delivering and are using quite a lot of this uh, steel. Because if you look at the facts, well, we're producing a whole lot of iron ore around the world right now. Some all-time highs in terms of iron ore production. Yet the stockpiles in China or at four-year lows in terms of iron ore, and you don't see a massive uh, oversupply of steel products that are just being stockpiled. So this steel is being produced, it's being used, even with what you see in the news. So we're, we're in a situation now where we're at all-time highs in terms of iron ore production, the price is pretty healthy, and all of the steel is being produced and used. Right, okay, so so what's happening in China if you're at all-time low? So they're saying that the, the, the production, production um, is still there. There's a need still there, but how do, how do you benefit from that? I'm trying to work out because obviously you've got what they want. So coming back to the question about with the thoughts about premiums and therefore margins in terms of what you do, can you ex explain a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so when we look at what's happening in the market now, high-grade iron ore always fetches a premium. That premium right now is pretty low. So when you look at historically, since there was uh, the indexes that were produced or that were invented, call it about 15 years ago, we're at pretty much an all-time low in terms of premiums for high grade. Why is that? Well, there's three main reasons. One, the fact that environmental restrictions in China are not as uh, high as they were pre-COVID. So China is still working past and getting the economy back up in terms of the uh, post-COVID situation. So they have not put environmental restrictions. When there's environmental restrictions on the steel manufacturing, that typically favors high-grade iron ore and fetches much higher premiums because you produce less CO2 emissions per ton of steel produced when you use high-grade. Second, when you want to increase your productivity, while well, you also need higher-grade iron ore. Because again, with the same vessel or the same manufacturing capacity, if you have more input of high-quality iron, well, you'll get more output of steel for the same, the same capacity. Right now, the steel mills in China are not incentivized to be able to be more productive. So they're buying lower grade material to be able to pump out the steel. So when you look at the rest of the world also, especially Europe, Europe is typically a consumer of high grade and they've not recovered uh, either when you look at the, um, the steel manufacturing portion and the downstream um, use. But when you look at the trend, we're starting to get back into where we were sort of pre-COVID and that typically favors the higher grade uh, iron ore. Right, and when we first started talking, China was sort of putting out um, uh, directives uh, around the kind of issues they're struggling with or air pollution. They put around directives in terms of not just batteries, but obviously large processing um, facilities, which were causing all of this air air pollution. Now, I imagine off the back of COVID, perhaps the, the rules have kind of relaxed slightly, but is that, do you expect a kind of return to kind of previous levels? Is that the expectation for you? Yeah, we definitely expect that. And, and we've actually started to see it. So if you look two weeks ago, uh, China actually started putting restrictions on sintering. So that agglomeration portion just before the steel making process. And when they typically do that, it's because of air quality. So the air quality was declining and then it got to a point where even if they want to kick back the environment, well, they don't want to let people breathe that lower quality air. So that's, they restarted putting those uh, restrictions. And there's typically a lag between when they start putting those restrictions and when you actually see that premium increasing. 
But I think the trend is going in the um, in the way that we've just discussed, where we do feel China's going to put those restrictions back on. Right. So we're talking to macro um, China there, but there's also other markets which are, are quite big in significance here in Europe. Um, obviously, things have been a little bit tough in the last three years. We've seen, you know, various facilities, you know, close down or at least, not necessarily mothballed, but, you know, may, maybe um, reduce output because of COVID. What's happening in Europe for you? Because I guess where I'm going with this question is like, which market will you be selling into? What are the other influencers out there in terms of you know, European market, North American market, as, as well as Asia, which kind of drive that price premium? Because obviously that affects your margins. Yeah, for us, the, the definite growth uh, is to go into the electric arc furnaces. And when you look at the markets that we want to be able to tap into, Europe is a definite uh, one, especially Germany. When you look at uh, the US all on the East Coast, the Middle East is going to be extremely interesting, and we can we can dive into that. And there's also Canada that becomes an opportunity for us. So we definitely want to reduce our exposure to Asia and um, increase our exposure to markets that are closer to home. For us, there's two reasons. One, the stability of it. But two, it lowers our shipping costs. So we're able to have higher margins when we sell closer to home. And, and we're typically at a disadvantage today if you compare it to a large market like Australia, because they're so close to Asia, but that flips into our advantage when we look at Europe, US, Canada, because now their market's closer to home and much further away from Australia. Well, I guess there's a fourth factor, which is you know much talk from the US, and I don't know if it's posturing, but we're certainly seeing some very robust conversations around funding and the access to funding if you supply into China, which they you know, have been viewing as a, a competitive um, aggressor. Um, so I, is that something that you're conscious of as well when you're making these decisions? Yeah, definitely. And when you look at the, the geopolitical situation between Canada and China, sometimes there, there are some potential risks. If you go back a few years ago, when China imposed some, some pretty harsh restrictions on Australia for coal, uh, the last thing we want to do is to be in a situation where we're overly exposed to China in um, in our sales. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to report today that we're one of the iron ore companies that is the least exposed to China today, but we want to continue selling to markets closer to home and reduce even further that exposure. Right. And and, um, and let's talk about, you mentioned earlier in terms of increased production, you know, at you know reasonably high levels. At the moment, Brazil is one of the, um, you know, the long-standing um, iron ore producers. Um, do, you, do you think, given the, um, the high grades that you've got, you're competing uh, against Brazilian products, or do you think you'll find your own sort of European or uh, US markets without having to, uh, again, affect your margins, drop price, et cetera? Yeah, our goal is to really have a unique product. So by doing that, we feel that there's a lot less competition. And we, we have the advantage where we operate in the Labrador trough that in the ground, it's one of the highest purity materials in the world. We need to upgrade it, but it, it, it it's upgradable to one of the highest purities. And we set ourselves apart from Brazil in that sense that we're actually a higher quality than what Brazil makes. And when you look at the market, I mean, we're talking about a 2 billion ton per year market. We produce 15 million tons per year. So we're, we're never really going to displace a whole lot of larger players. But where we want is focus on margins and focus on the higher value of this high purity. And that's where we can make a product that's pretty much 100% pure. And that's where we really separate ourselves. And that's why we want to tap into markets like Europe, 
that need this type of material to be able to produce their high quality steel. Right, and that's that's really interesting to me in terms of obviously it's it's a big um, um, market, and you're saying well actually if we can differentiate ourselves enough, then therefore we can always create our own microcosm in terms of pricing and, and therefore margin. Uh, always comes back to margin um, in that. It, are there enough buyers of what you've got, or will people say, "Well, do you know what? I, I guess that's the, the price sensitivities." Is that they say, "Do you know what? We'll just stick with what we've got. The ch- cheapest buying, we can, we can, we can, we'll stick with that." Would you think there's a demand, whether that be from automotive manufacturers or other groups, that say the green component is critical to what we're doing, and we will, you know, are prepared to pay a premium for that? Where yeah, are they? Get- Who are they? If you look at the end user, what we're actually seeing now is the first time we're seeing green premiums for steel. And where we're starting to see it, it's car manufacturers like BMW. And when you look at the the cost of of selling a car, if you sell a 60 or 70,000 euro car and you have one ton of steel, to pay an extra 500 euros to have a green manufacturing, you can easily market that uh, at the end and you can add that value to your product. So what we want to make sure that we tap into is to into steel manufacturers that supply these high-end uh, steel users that are able to charge back to the clients or the, to the customers the actual premiums. So we're starting to see those premiums happen. And when you look at the, the, the potential market that we have, where we really want to differentiate ourselves is to be that purest material. Because if we go back to the electric uh, arc furnaces, you're not able to separate as much your contaminants when you're when you produce steel using that technology. So when you look at the global scrap market, what's happening? You're seeing new electric vehicles. You can now control your microwave with your phone. So yeah, you have a lot of these steel products in washer dryers in in cars that have a whole lot more copper than what they used to in the past. And copper is a big contaminant in steel manufacturing. So you're seeing your scrap portion be more and more contaminated. You're seeing the use of uh, artificial intelligence be able to revolutionize the way that people use steel sheets. So in the past, you used to buy a sheet, you'd punch a door, and then the rest would be scrap. And then that's your best scrap because it's, it's steel. But now they punch a door, they have a little part for this, a little part for that, and they're able to maximize the use. So you have less prime scrap, you have scrap that's more contaminated, and if you want to be able to produce your high quality steel, you need this ultra pure material that we can produce. And by being the purest in the world, we allow steel manufacturers to buy lower quality scrap and still be able to make their product. So they can save on the scrap and then pay us more for the high purity material. Interesting. And do you think this is a, because it's a relatively new concept, it's only green steel, you know, the, um, do you think that there's a job to be done by the, the, the sales teams of, you know, well, across the across the food chain, because the the like for instance, the EU have got directives around, um, you know, well certainly carbon quotas for car manufacturers, for example. Do you think that this will become better and better understood, and therefore we can sort of drive again that that premium price once it is more understood? Because there aren't a lot of people producers talking about green steel at the moment. It's 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 a nascent sector. So what's what's your call in terms of? how this rolls out? Well, I think there's a few areas where we're going to start to see more and more pull on green steel. And cars is definitely one, but the one that we're not talking about so much is the actual infrastructure being built to transition the energy. 
So if you look at the amount of steel that's going to be required just to get the the grid, uh, the worldwide grid into a greener position, we're talking roughly about three and a half billion tons over the next 15 years to be able to um, to produce wind farms, to produce solar panels, to produce nuclear, whatever technology you decide to use that is greener to produce energy, you need a significant amount of steel. And our view is that governments like Canada in Europe and the US, they're going to have to integrate the, the notion of using green steel in their uh, infrastructure built because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to build a wind uh, a windmill using uh, steel that produces a whole lot of CO2 emissions. You're, you're counter to what you're trying to do. So once that gets uh, better understood and uh, we feel governments are, are close to being there, well, we see there's going to be a big pull on that side in tandem with the cars, with the um, uh, home appliances and so on. Essentially, that the whole end-to-end green, green solution. I can't wait for green concrete. Um, right, we better talk about what you're doing. Okay, Eloy, so that's a, that's a really kind of fascinating backdrop and understanding of the market, which maybe not everyone has, has, has grasped yet. But let's talk about what you're doing, okay? You're a $3 billion company. It gets really hard for $3 billion plus companies to talk to me about growth, and that's why investors invest. Okay, so what are you doing about it? Where do you see your growth coming from? So if you look at our company, I mean, we, we started about in operations roughly about five years ago, and we started our first plant producing 8 million tons per year. Uh, we had a plant that was already semi-built, and we finished that plant during COVID, delivered the project on time and budget, and now we have an in-play capacity of 15 million tons per year. Now the next steps of growth, um, there, there's a few different areas. One is to increase the quality of our material to get higher premiums. And the second portion is potential volume increase. So if we if we look at the first, the, the value accretion on the product, so we currently have a feasibility study that we delivered and we've started committing capital on a project. It's roughly about 350 million US um, project that'll help us bring the grade of our material to 69%. This might not look very high, but the maximum uh, that you can reach is 70%. Because in the ground, you have water, uh, sorry, you have um, uh, oxygen and uh, iron that are mixed together. So when you look at those, being at 69%, you're the purest material. So that 350 million investment allows us to bring half of our tons to um, 69%, so 7.5 million tons per year. And it allows us in the current market to get an extra uh, margin of $20 US per ton. So when you look at seven and a half million tons, $20 margin for a $350 million investment, you can see that the payback is very quick and that it creates a whole lot of value for our shareholders. What we have in our back pocket is we can actually in the future convert our first plant as well. So we can bring all of our tons to that sort of level and that would potentially create another $20 margin on another uh, seven and a half million tons. So in, in terms of value accretion, I think we've got two great projects um, in the pipeline. The first one, we should be able to, to FID or to take the final investment decision before the end of this calendar year. What we've told the market is that we're waiting on two elements. One, we're finalizing a debt package with our, with our um, current partners. I don't think we'll need that money because we're creating uh, quite a lot of value right now. We should be able to pay the project out of cash flow, but we always like to operate in a very conservative way. So we want the financing package in place in case something happens in the market. And we need the power allocation from the Quebec government, roughly about 25 megawatts. 
and we've applied for that. Uh, we should be able to, to get a positive decision fairly quickly. And once we've got those two, we could go to the board, take the, the final investment decision. So that would be one of the first projects in the world to be able to produce 69% iron. Okay, so it's quite interesting. In, in markets like this, people get a little bit nervous. Like even you've been kind of moving sideways for, for, for the past year or so, and where it's kind of risk off and you don't think anyone loves you anymore, but, but they're just watching and, and observing. So it's one of those things of do you be conservative, in control, or do you maybe think big? Because what I've heard today from you is there's a quiet confidence that you've got a niche product within a big global market, which you, you feel that you can get a premium on, and maybe that premium increases over time. Um, you are scaling up. Um, you are, again, coming back to the, the great thing, the, 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 grade of, the grade of the ore is obviously important to you as well. It's do you say... I'm not going to be sort of half pregnant on this one. I'm going to go for it. Maybe bring in a partner with bigger balance sheets, um, maybe to help with that or expedite that growth component. Or in a market like this, does it kind of temper your thinking somewhat? And you say, I, I don't know what the conversations are at board level, but I'd, I'd be intrigued to see what the what the optionality is. Yeah, when you look, I, I think if you take a little step back, what's interesting about our company, even if we're a $3 billion company, I mean, management and directors own over 9% of the business. So when we look at potential investments, there's no ego in there. It's just, does it make sense business-wise? Is it going to be accretive for shareholders? Because we are major shareholders as well. So when we look at the potential growth initiatives that we have, we, we need to make sure that we keep a clean balance sheet because that's what makes it very difficult in volatile markets. If we start over leveraging because we want to think big and be fully pregnant, I think that could potentially hurt us in the future. So we want to create value, but do it at the right pace and do something that we can actually achieve. So when you look at the, the value creation on our product, we feel that that's something we can do on our own. I mean, there, there are $350 million investments for one plant, then for the second plant. This is something that we can generate the cash flow and be able to um, to create that value ourselves. When we look at growth of volume, that's another story. And that's where we get into a territory where a partner makes a whole lot more sense for us. If we go and dive into the growth initiatives that we have, we have one that we also feel that we can do ourselves. That's a deep bottlenecking directly at Bloom Lake. So if you go back in our numbers in 2020 at the uh, in the third quarter um, calendar year or in the uh, November, October, November, December quarter, we produced a run rate of 9 million tons per year in the plant. So we know that technically the system can take 9 million tons. We know that the phase two project, our expansion, is a mirror copy to our first plant, but with beefed up components. So we do feel that in the future, we can bring Bloom Lake to roughly that 17, 18 million ton run rate. And that's a few million tons extra but that creates a whole lot of value for our shareholders because it's not as complicated as starting a green uh, greenfield project. So that is a growth initiative that we feel that we can do on our own. Now, if you look at the partner uh, portion, we just acquired two years ago the Cami uh, ore body. That's about 20 kilometers away from Blue Lake, and it's in Labrador. And that's a project that was permitted, that had the construction uh, started, and that we picked up um, two years ago for a pretty uh, interesting price. Now that project, we're looking at, uh, we're delivering the feasibility study at the end of this year, but that's gonna be a much more expensive project. And what we've always said is we want to have the right partner and it's not just a financial partner, we need someone that actually wants those tons and is willing to invest alongside of us 
to be able to potentially bring that project on. So we are in discussion with potential partners now to be able to look at that growth initiative. That would be an extra 8 million tons per year of DR grade material, also of the purest material on earth as well. Okay, so you've definitely got optionality in terms of that, that, those growth phases. Um, and I guess we'll hear more when you know more when those, those conversations and develop. Talk to me about barriers. What are the what are the big issues for you? And I, I'm not talking about the everyday putting out small fires. I'm talking about the big issues for you. And obviously Canada's been sort of, I guess, quite famous in the last two, three years in terms of getting, you know, local social license. It has caused some companies problems in terms of yeah, licenses and permits and, and quite frankly, sometimes even access to their projects. So what are, you, what are you doing in terms of, let's say, that specifically first? Yeah, so I, I'd say there's two two uh, angles to, to that answer. One, we've always viewed ourselves as a growth company. So what we always wanted to make sure is to be close to local communities, because as you mentioned, that can stop your growth. I mean, if you have local communities that are against what you're trying to do, that could uh, stop indefinitely your, your projects. So what we've decided to do first on, and also because it's part of our values. So if we like to actually be, make a difference when we operate, well, we got very close with the First Nations to the extent that uh, the first contract that we signed was the impact benefit agreement with the First Nations. But I mean, it goes much beyond that. We're helping on the culture side. We're investing in creating businesses in the community so they can diversify and create uh, wealth within the community. I spend my own vacation with my family in the the Washamanitanam area on a music festival, and we've partnered up with that. So we, we've gone pretty close to the actual community. And I think it's one, it pays off because uh, it's fun to be able to, to, to have that relationship. But two, if you look at when we got our phase two permitted, so our expansion, the First Nations actually officially supported us. They sent letters to the government to support our project. Publicly, they supported our project. So it makes a big difference when you've got that support to be able to get the permitting process in line. And we've improved the relationship since then, and we're working to be able to develop projects alongside the First Nations and the local communities to be able to continue that growth. So I agree with you, can be a challenge, but I think we, we've definitely put the efforts and the time to make sure that we build those relationships. Okay, and, and, and anything else that you were so conscious of needing to spend time or wanting to spend time to do um, in terms of de delays to your plans um, what, do, what do you look at? Yeah, the, the, the second part is that what we needed to do, and we started doing that four years ago, and we, we've been working very hard at it, is we needed to make sure that governments on the federal side and provincial side understand the difference between high purity iron ore and your typical iron ore. So we've got the disadvantage that iron ore has been probably the most useful metal in the world for the past millennia. So that People don't think of iron ore as rare. They don't think of iron ore as critical because it's it's available everywhere. But when we start getting into the high purity, well, then you start noticing, okay, for this high purity iron ore, you only got Ukraine, Russia, Canada, and Brazil. So it's very um, limited to where you can actually access it. And Canada must play a role because it's a, it's a very good jurisdiction to be able to mine, uh, to be able to have great workers, and to be able to have the good infrastructure. So we lobbied the government on the federal side and provincial side so they could understand the difference between high purity and typical iron ore. And we feel that now governments understand, so we're back on a priority list in terms of potential permitting compared to where we were a few years ago. Everybody's excited about lithium and graphite and 
and cobalt, but realistically, we're also part of the solution. So there was a lot of work to be able to get there. And I feel that we've gotten there now and we'll continue to work on that. And I feel that if we hadn't have done that, that's a big barrier because you don't want to be part of those minerals that the government doesn't want to, to, um, to get exploited. And I think the final barrier uh, where we're lucky, where I don't feel it is one for now, is typically infrastructure. And when you look at big bulk projects like iron ore, well, yes, there's the mine, but you need to get the rail and you need to get the port right. And we're one of the only jurisdictions in the world that actually has spare capacity at the port and spare capacity on the rail. So in terms of barriers to get the new projects online, I think we, we really separate ourselves having the government support the local communities and the spare capacity on the infrastructure. David, good update. Um, it's been a while since we saw you back in February, but uh, it looks like things are advancing. And hopefully the markets uh, come back to us in terms of the equities, but, um, but clearly on the infrastructure build-outs, that's already there. Um, and let's see what role you take in that. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure.